This is the Secrets We Share podcast, a show about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, and the left and rights of mental health care in Australia. Here's your host, Francis Carlton. Welcome to Secrets We Share, brought to you by the Secret Keeper Counselling, where we talk about all things mental health with clients and clinicians. There may be tears, triggers, laughter, more learning, and sometimes some profanity. So you've been warned, make yourself a cup of tea, sit back and relax as I talk to Olga from Wollongong, who's going to share some secrets with us today. Welcome, Olga. Hello, how are you? Great. Thank you for allowing me to come into your space. This is a, a wonderful space that you've got here in in Wollongong for seeing clients. Oh, thank you. And it's lovely to have you here with me. Yeah, thank you. So just tell me a little bit about yourself. You're a clinical psychologist. You're in Wollongong and you've been practising for how long? Well, now I really have to think back. I have been practising for so long. I was first a psychologist and I started in 1988. 1988. Yes, yes, uh, long ago. And then I became a clinical psychologist in 2000. Okay. So I've been practising quite a long time. Quite a long time. What do you enjoy about being a clinical psychologist? Wow. Okay. So what I enjoy, I enjoy the, you know, I see a lot of different people with different presentations, different sorts of clients. And working as a clinical psychologist, I really enjoy just working with a whole bunch of different people with different presentations, different problems. Um, For me, I just like the challenge. Fantastic. And how is a clinical psychologist different to a psychologist? Okay, so that's a big question and there's a lot of debate about that going on at the moment. And so a clinical psychologist, we've done some further study and um, and we're endorsed as clinical psychologists because we've done the clinical master's degree. Okay. And um, like for me personally, I don't see myself as being better than a psychologist. Uh, I think that uh, there are lots of good psychologists out there, lots of good clinical skills they have. And so for me, I don't differentiate. I have psychologists working in my practice for me. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. And what... What do you, what value do you see that a psychologist offers that a counsellor might not be able to offer? Okay, so we are really being uh, psychologists, clinical psychologists. We have the university background and we use a lot of the, we do use evidence-based practice. And so we have uh the just generalist counsellors and they're not endorsed uh, by Medicare to be able to give people rebates for people who come under mental health care plans. Uh, the general counsellors, um, it's more people say that it's just more talking therapy where other psychologists like to give people really specific strategies and we do see people with complex presentations. Okay. So from a counsellor, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of those counsellors. Um, a counsellor or a counselling psychologist? No, so I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist. I'm a counsellor and a psychotherapist. Oh, you're a counsellor psychotherapist. Uh, yes. Well, I hope I didn't offend you. No, absolutely not. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm always intrigued to find out because I do have a master's degree in what I do. So I'm always, I'm always fascinated to have the conversation about the differences between psychology and counselling because a lot of people do not understand the differences between a counsellor and a psychologist. So, do you know, that's exactly right. Mm. And I think also because you have the master's degree mm. and you are probably uh, belong to the uh, Counsellors Association. I do, yes. That's right. So with you, you have that backing for you being a reputable counsellor. Mm. But then there are people, I guess, that are out there that don't have that. Yes. And yeah. so, we. I mean, if I was someone uh, had said to me they'd been to a counsellor, and, I mean, I have no problems with that. Some people still continue to see them. Mm, yeah. And um, as long as they're reputable, I think they still can, like, they have mm. a good effect. Mm, yeah. Talking therapy is, is 
has its place, and gen- generally councillors who are who are with the ACA they have requirements of what they need to do in order to maintain their registration. So they have to see a clinical supervisor. They have to maintain their ongoing professional development in different areas. They need to have degrees in some cases or have a minimum of like 500 client-facing hours before they can be registered. So there's a, it's quite, it's quite a, can, can be quite an arduous process of, of getting into being something with like with the ACA or with PACFA, which is the Asia Pacific Federation of Councillors Association or something. Yeah. So. And they're really pushing for at the moment, aren't they, to get a Medicare rebate for councillors, aren't they? Yeah, they are as a as a as a support to as a support to psychologists because as you would be aware. Doctors will do a mental health care plan. They'll make a referral to a psychologist. And I know that in Canberra, because slightly, you know, we're sort of a two and a half hour drive away from you, there's up to a three and a half month wait to see a psychologist for a mental health care plan. Yes. And sessions are sometimes four or five weeks between sessions because they just don't have the appointment slots. And, you know, I think that's a bit too uh, long. It is too long to have Mm. that uh, four or five-week wait. A four or five-week appointment between, that's fine if you're just following someone up, treatment's finished and um, you've been seeing them weekly and then, you know, you've progressed to fortnightly and then things are going so well, you just want a follow-up appointment. Mm. But after you see someone initially and then have to wait four or five weeks, that's too long. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the reason why people like the ACA, the Australian Counselling Association or ACA is pushing for counsellors to be registered for, to provide also those sessions in mental health care plans, is sometimes people go to their doctors with with in crisis over a particular issue and that may be able to be solved with talk therapy not necessarily requiring a diagnosis. Look that's exactly right and you know what there are many people who have uh, something's happened they have some sort of issue and they just need someone to go over Mm. it or some problems Mm. and um, it's not something where they really need uh, long-term treatment and, um, and yeah, and yeah, so they can find that benefit. Yeah. I do know for myself that if I see somebody who has or somebody comes to me, because I do do EAP work, employee assistance program work as well, I do refer, if they're completely out of my scope of knowledge, I will send them back to their doctor, I will send them to get that referral, but I will support them in the time between yes. getting that, between leaving potentially leaving me and going to see a, a psychologist if they've got something deeper going on. And, you know, as us psychologists, if we're seeing a client and it's not within our scope, their difficulties are or the treatment we can provide, we also mm. really need to be, and we do, refer them to people who are more in their field, in their mm. expertise, who can deal with mm. that for it to be quite effective mm. because we can't always know everything for every single presentation yeah. or for instance I never see anybody under the age of 18 okay that's my I don't do well, I don't I don't see under 18s anymore I have a child and adolescent psychologist psychologist who works here that yep. sees them I just see adults yes and I do EAP work as well okay okay brilliant so when we um, when we spoke on the telephone a few weeks ago to set this to set this up, um, we we had a little bit of a chat about some things that were going on in your personal life, and how that might affect your your practice. Can you tell me a little bit about um, the the incident that happened to you uh, a few years ago that's had such a profound effect on you and your the way you operate? Okay, so in 2014, uh, I lost my husband suddenly. He uh, had a heart attack. And so from then, um, I decided, uh, and I really only had about three, four weeks off work and I came back uh, to work. And um, from there, I decided to that I really wanted this niche area of helping people with grief, loss and trauma. After my own journey... 
and um, looking and uh, 12 months later, when I look back on everything of what I did and how I managed and how I coped, I really wanted to be able to be a centre here for grief, loss and trauma. Mm. And so that's something that we do. We focus on that area. And with having Shanna as um, a child and adolescent psychologist, she's able to do and deal with um, children who've been affected by trauma and grief and loss. And so it is something that when I went through uh, my own journey of grief, I also looked around and sort of thought, well, I wonder sort of what, not that I needed them, but I just sort of thought I don't really see that there's many services that really particular focus on that area. Okay, on grief and loss. Yes. Okay. Like I think they're just sort of general. And um, also going through my journey, I also learned about a lot about grief and loss and um, we always get lots of clients come in or be sent to us because someone has passed away. And interestingly enough, a grief is such a normal uh response to the loss of a loved one Mm. and um, people really need to be able to be given the opportunity to grieve before they're sent in to see someone because really they have to go through the grief process yes and there's no right or wrong way to grieve yes there's no right or wrong way can you can you just talk about that a little bit more yes so grief is such a individual unique journey There's no right or wrong. You know, everybody's going to have lots of different negative emotions. Uh, There's no, there are no stages of grief. And it depends. It goes against everything that that a good old Kubler-Ross says about there being the five stages of grief or seven, depending on which one you look at. Oh, absolutely. And um, so what's happened there, when she did her uh, research, it was more to do with uh, patients who were dying. So it was how they were feeling. And so it was more also to do with um, the anticipatory anticipatory grief uh, for the carers. So because it became, it was just this model and then there was other sort of stages of grief. And so there really are none. We just flip from different emotions at different times. So there is no acceptance, anger. I can't even remember what they are because we know, because we don't follow that. Well, there is acceptance. Bargaining. Bargaining, acceptance, bargaining, bargaining, anger. Some people find it difficult to accept and once it becomes, uh, it is a problem for them to be accepting grief. If they're in a lot of denial and when we're talking about that, you know, we're talking about even like uh, they're quite distressed, they're really yearning for their loved one. Um, the circumstances of the death can play a long part of it, that they may have uh, a complicated grief. Mm. But really, you wouldn't be looking at that until 12 months later if they're still quite distressed. And anger, people do get angry. As far as it was for me, I just thought, what is the purpose of it? I can't control what happened but being angry was certainly not going to help me when I had to try and work out how we were going to live or what mm. what do I need to do or how do I need to do it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, um, I, had a, I had a client come to me um, fairly recently. She was a, a lady in her 80s. She had lost her husband quite unexpectedly. Who He was 87. Mm-hmm. Um, but quite unexpectedly she had lost him and they'd been married for 63 years. And she was sat in front of me four months after he had passed away saying, I should be over this by now. Oh. How would, how, how, what would your response been to that? Because I'm imagining it's probably similar to mine. You never get over it. Yeah. You learn to live with it. You learn to adjust to life without him. Yeah. You can never get over him at all. You will always remember him. You never forget him. You think about him all the time. And that's okay. That's just part of life. Mm. And that's just the connecting bond you have still with them. And I think it's actually quite lovely. Mm. And I guess the era that your client may have come from, when you think about it, it was a different time and different ways they had learned to grieve. Mm. And so a lot Mm. of that time it was all about, you know, that's it. 
get over it and keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Well, she was very much of that and she was, you know, she was getting not pressure but her peers were certainly saying to her that she should be moving on by now and, you know, getting out and about. But this was a, this, this was a lady who had, you know, who was very reliant on her husband. He did everything on the computer. He did everything in the garden. She directed him in the garden. Oh. She, she told me this wonderful story about how she would sit in her chair and basically point him at things to prune and he would just be there with his secretaries cutting. She was telling me these beautiful stories, these wonderful memories. And I was really able to sort of like put her in a, a sense of place that it's okay for her to have these memories. It's okay for her to still cry. It's okay for her to admit that she's struggling because, you know, they had, she had literally been with him for 24 seven. That's right. So she, she'd never worked. So she'd always, she'd been a housewife. He'd come home, she'd, she'd, you know, she'd been the wife and mother. So she knew nothing else apart from, she couldn't remember her life before she'd been with him. Well, you know, that's right. And you know what? Four months, that's very, very early. Oh, I know, that's, that's, that's kind of what I... It take a lot of adjustment for her and yeah. at that age. And uh, interestingly enough, um, a lot of older widows, they have tend to, uh, if their husbands have been sick and they've had to look after them, um, they they sort of feel a bit of a sense of relief mm. that now it's over. Yeah, well, this lady, of course, she didn't. He, he died very unexpectedly at 87. He was in very good health and just sort mm. of was out in the garden one day and didn't come back in for his afternoon tea. Oh. So she'd been sat inside doing the crossword. So there was a little bit of, I think for her, there was certainly some guilt as well that she hadn't been out there with him like she normally would have been. That's right. Um, because she had had knee, she'd had a knee operation, so she was resting. Um, but her daughter was really, really worried about the fact that she wasn't sort of moving on. But it was, it was, you know, and I don't know if how this is for you, but she said the hardest time for her is at night time because there's nobody in the bed next to her. Well, but it's uh, night times are a problem for a lot of uh, people who've lost their loved ones because it is so quiet at night, mm. and they tend to think. And if there's no one um, at home, then it's too quiet. They have no one to talk to. They feel really lonely. I mean, I'm quite fortunate because I have uh, my girls, and they were uh, 14 and 15 when their father died, and so they still live at home. They're now 19 and 21, mm. so they still live at home so I still have that noise at night time and I've still got someone I can talk to and That's we just a, chat and watch TV. A little bit of hustle and bustle still. But uh, yeah I don't yeah. have that but yeah. I have been thinking about that recently that one day they won't be there and I will be on my own and I'm thinking now oh well I feel that sort of loneliness or it'll be really quiet so is there something that you're doing for yourself having had that thought about being able to fill that time, cope with that time that when the house is quiet? Oh, yes. I'll just have to become addicted to social media like the young ones and start <laughs> messaging everybody. <laughs> what, about, what about music? Was, is, is music a big part of your life? No, you know what, I sort of quite like the quiet anyway at night okay. and I would probably do reading and if it was too quiet and I don't really watch TV, I'd probably turn the TV on for some background noise, Okay. you know, and um, I would probably, you know, because I work during the day, I would probably like do other things to be able to catch up at night. Mm. Yeah, okay. But as long as you're not working... As long as I'm not working, no, it wouldn't be any work. It would be everything I'd want to do for myself, maybe even pamper myself. And if there was that odd occasion, watch TV, then who knows, I might get into Netflix. You might, you're not into Netflix already? No. No, no. you haven't got really into that? I watch TV or any of that. We've got Netflix, but, yeah, yeah. I might get into that, find yeah. a series. <laughs> After you've spent three days trying to figure out what you want to watch. That's exactly right. And know how to uh, work it all or switch on to Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what sort of things do you enjoy doing in your in, in your in your downtime? 
Okay, so in my downtime, I, you know what I really like doing? I like to potter around my own place and just find all those little things to do. I like decluttering at home. Right. Yes, I'm always looking around for things that I can sort of maybe they get rid of, tidy up, clean up, get organised. I also like to read. I like to read a lot. Okay, what sort of books do you read? They're actually not books. I just like to read articles. And okay. not like psychology research articles. I just sort of like to read the newspapers, see what's going on. Okay. And then if there's a link onto something else... Um, and or just something, some sort of self-help thing I can find. So I like looking on um, the internet. Of what's so you going... fall down the rabbit hole of the internet, do you? Well, I guess I do because I read a lot off there. Yeah. I do the newspapers and then okay. look on what's happening currently in the world. Okay. And then I also, I also like to go out for a walk. Okay. Because I live near the beach, so go out for a walk and um, as part of exercise, I like to catch up with friends and um, and just sort of like sometimes just pamper myself. So you're working in the field of grief and loss and trauma recovery and you've been through your own um, trauma and grief. I'm just wondering how how you find... A big day, what do you do for yourself after you've had a big day where you may have found yourself a little bit more sensitive than you normally would be and or you've had a really big client who's really sort of like pushed a few of those buttons because obviously as, as counsellors and therapists we do sometimes have clients that just push our buttons a little bit. How do, is there anything special that you do to get, get through that and to, to, to deal with those sorts of clients? Well, what happens is a lot of those also some of those times I just um, I'm always able to separate work from home. Okay. I keep the boundaries there and I can and even with uh, people's grief and loss and some of their stories are quite horrendous and I sometimes uh, think to myself, wow, you know, I'm really lucky that I didn't really have to go through that. Mm. I also, if it has been a big day, then I, uh, on my way home, I actually walk home from the office. So it, that helps me to clear my head. So is it sort of like a 20-minute, 30-minute walk or? Uh, 10 minutes. Oh. <laughs> it's a 10-minute walk and so, and then, you know, <laughs> even just that 10-minute walk, you can just change your headspace. Yeah. So is, do you have a particular sort of like mantra that you might say or you just... Is it just something that happens now, that changing It just space? happens now because, and a lot of it has to do with my own practice of being mindful okay. and mindfulness. And so I can really, uh, you know, from just being mindful myself all the time, I leave the office, that's it, I'm outside, that's it, I finish thinking about work, I don't think about it anymore, I'm walking home, taking the environment around me and then I know when I get home, then it'll be, that's it. It starts having to think about what I'm going to cook and all that. So I don't bring it home mm. with me. Okay. Have you ever had, um, this is, you know, casting your mind back to in days of yore, have you ever had a client that has just stuck with you? Oh, interesting. Now I'm really thinking about that. Um, not really. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think the ones that uh, have stuck with me have been um, no, not really. When I think about it, that's amazing. It, yeah, I th I don't know. I think it's because I've practiced uh, for so long as a psychologist. I can just put it away yeah. and aside. So it's something you've really learned to do. I've really learned. You, you know, you, you're you there, you empathise, you really understand. But once you leave the therapy room, you have to go into another headspace. Okay. If you're doing something else, if I'm just working on um, the business end, I'm in that headspace, I'm wearing that hat. You yep. learn to put the different mm. hats on and I think you have to and that's also... 
when you go home, you have to put, I'm just a normal Olga at home about mm. to laze around. Mm. Yeah. Yes, it's 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 really interesting because uh, this is something that's come up with a few a few practitioners and flu clinicians that I've spoken to around that sort of like that divide, and how the longer we practice, sometimes the easy there, there seems to be two, two two schools of people that I've spoken to. There's those that have much more difficulty letting go of clients the longer uh, yes. they practice. And of course, as, as we as we both know, that probably is going to lead to sort of them leaving, leaving being a practitioner at some point in the future, because they are heading towards burnout and compassion fatigue and things like that. And then there's those of there's those that can empathise and be empathy plus when they're in the counselling room, but once that once that door closes and once that client has gone, that's it. It's gone. That's right. That's me. Yeah. That's me. And I actually think that's quite healthy. Mm. Otherwise, you're just carrying work with you all the time. Mm. It's certainly something I've had to learn. And one of the things I, 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 I do to help that process is I write notes during session. Yes, so do I. I don't write notes. Once the session is done, that's it. That's that session done. Well, I actually sometimes have to because I haven't finished or I've got to write some letters uh, to yeah. doctors or there's reports to be returned. Yeah. So um, I I do, but when I'm doing that, I'm doing that. But after that, yeah. it's really you have to be task-focused. So if you're not mm. with the client and you mm. have to do something else, then you mm. have to be focused on that task. Mm. Yeah, it's funny because I, I, I also write letters and, and reports and things like that for, um, for, for different clients. And when I'm in that, as you said, you're in that headspace yeah. doing that, that, that task. And it's funny because a, a lot of um, clients have actually asked me, you know, how, how do you do this? And I go, well, I have a really good face for, a really good memory for yeah. faces. And quite often I'll see a name on it in my diary and go, mm, I, especially with my employee assistance program clients, I have, I've got no recall of what that is. As soon as I see that client sat in the waiting room, it's like a, it's like a scene out of a, out of a cartoon where this enormous filing cabinet is thrown open that person's file is sort of laid out in front of me and I can immediately remember everything that we've spoken about in the previous session or sessions. Yes, that's right. And you know what? That happens to me too. Yeah. You, you do. You remember things. Mm. It's just, uh, yes, you've got the file you've looked, but you do. You remember things. You know what they've talked about. But even if you forget, sometimes I'll start talking and it jogs your own memory. Yeah, yeah, that filing cabinet that we have in our brains is uh, oh, quite absolutely. phenomenal. I am a walking filing cabinet. Um, I do remember a lot of things. But then again, I've started to forget a lot of things, but that's also, I don't really think it's that I've forgotten. I think it's because I've learned to be through uh, with my practice to be really uh, mindful of the moment of wherever mm. I am. Okay. And to just a focus on that one thing. So I don't have to keep going over and over in my head everything I've got to do mm. because I've just got it written down in a to-do list. Mm. And I can just oh, go and revert to that, see what I've got to do, write it, you know, and start doing it. Tick it off, next thing. Mm. So it sounds like you're, you, you know, you've got your practice down pat. Now, as as a as a consequence of of um, of your husband passing away and being in practice for so long, you wrote a book. Yes, I did. <clears throat> I wrote How the... was that process? Well, that was uh, really interesting. I wrote the New Normal: A Widow's Guide to Grief. I wrote it specifically to be able to help uh, widows, as well as I wrote it from a professional perspective as well. When I wrote the book, so what happens is when you're a widow and you have children, you don't really spend, have really all that time yourself to grieve and focus on yourself because for Mm. me it was about having to support the children Mm. as well because I was really fearful of them getting involved in drugs and alcohol because I couldn't cope with uh, what had happened and that was my biggest fear. So I really wanted to support them. 
And plus there's so much to do that you have to work out to do that sometimes really, when's there really time to grieve? Mm. Writing that book was my own opportunity to grieve, to actually I had to relive the whole thing again. Sometimes I had to put it down and um, have a break from it because Mm. I wasn't sleeping well. And um, after I'd have the break, I'd start writing again. Um, And so I really, in a sense, got to grieve again, grieve in my own time and uh, just think about things myself. Mm. Okay. So it's got the Widow's Guide to Grieving? A Widow's Guide to Grief. Widow's Guide to Grief. The new normal because it is. It's a new normal. We have to learn to live again. We have to adjust to life without our loved ones. So is it? would you say it's a self-help book? Uh, Yes, it is a self-help book. Plus it's also also for the psychologists to be able to... uh, be able to know what sort of strategies or things are useful. The interesting thing about the book, uh, one of the local psychiatrists, he actually uh, wanted to read the book and I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I've written so much in there. It's my own story as well mm. as a professional perspective. So I thought, oh, my gosh, I wonder what he's going to think, you know. And so I gave him the copy and um, he read it and he just messaged me back that how much he loved it, how much understanding he and learning he got from that book about grief, mm. what you really, what someone really feels and what they actually experience. And mm. he thought that was a really big learning mm. uh something that he really learned. He also thought it was really good that he actually wrote a book review. Right. Yes, on it uh, for um, a journal for psychiatrists. Oh, fantastic. Yes, because he, yeah. Did that boost your sales a bit? Uh, Yes, it did. It did. (laughs) The other thing is because he said he loved it because it was in such simple language that you could really understand. And that was my goal. I didn't want to write something complicated. I wanted people to be able to read it and understand um, the professional point of view as well as the personal perspective so that anybody can connect then with Mm. me. Yeah, okay. And I think, I mean, as you know, you know, when we're when we're sat with clients, we generally don't share our personal stuff with our clients because it's not about us. It's about it's about the client who sat in front of us. So did you find that having written a book with such a personal um, element to it where you were sharing your story, did you find that clients who either were current clients who, who maybe read the book or new clients came to you with a different view of you as a person as well as a practitioner? I think they came, I think they came with the view of um, the grief clients that I really, really understood them. Mm. I really understood what they were going through, that they uh, then um, had some that, you know, it was inspiring and hopeful for them that they and that they were coping and managing well. The other thing I wrote, the book, was also because, you know what, people are so frightened of grief Mm. and yet it's a normal response. Mm. Also, it gave them an opportunity to ask me sometimes some questions and, um, and I would answer them in general uh, because then it just reassured them that they were, their response was normal, Mm. that there is no right or wrong. And I took that risk when I shared with everybody my journey of grief, but it was also to, you know, it's a normal response. Mm. And you know what, Wollongong's so small, so when this had happened, um, half of Wollongong already knew and... um, even like before the even wrote the book, clients were coming in and saying how sorry they were about my loss. Right. Yeah. So people know. So how did how did that uh, how did that affect the way the sessions would go? They'd say it at the end when they're leaving. Right. So it was the door handle for you. 
Yes, yes. so they would say it at the end. And, um, you know, I just, uh, because I did go back to work uh, about three, four weeks after, and that was because really um, I needed my business. How long can I stay home? I have a family to support. Yes. You know, and so that was all part of, like, why I went back. And plus the girls went to school. So if they were going to school didn't look to me, I thought, well, they're going to school, I need to go back to work. And um, realistically, I guess my experience and having that, that I could put my hat on, I'm at work, this is the client's time, I'm here to help them. I put my own side, my own stuff aside. Mm. And when they did uh, say to me they were sorry for my loss, you know, I thanked them very much and they tell me how they found out and and that, and I guess, what can you do? Mm. Mm. But so nobody ever said said sorry for your loss at the beginning of a session. No, no. no. And funny, you know, some of my clients, because the book's on sale here, so they've uh, purchased the book because they've been really interested. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, that's amazing. And they just think it's like great. It's, I do find it fascinating because um, I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a clinical supervisor for, um, for other counsellors as well. And I, had a, I recently had a lady come to me and say that um, she had done a, a small personal disclosure to a client and she was, she was very thankful because she had been taught during her, during her training as a social worker we never self-disclose. We, it's never about us. It's not about, It's always about the client. And I'd said, no, it's okay. If it's going to help build that relationship then it can, and deepen the relationship with your client, then it's really important that just don't make it all about you, but if that's there's right. something that's going to have power for your client and resonate with your client, absolutely share it if you want to. And she came back and she said she'd done that. She said, we went, we went from sort of down here to up here in seconds because I had made this personal disclosure and the client suddenly realised, oh, my God, she gets it. Absolutely. We're human as well and we have things happen yeah. to us like our clients. Mm. And um, I had actually uh, a client once who said to me that they saw me shopping at Woolies and they said to their partner or husband, oh, my gosh, that's my psychologist over there. And when she told me, I said, well, I have to do shopping for groceries as well. I'm a normal <laughs> human being. I'm not someone really, some celebrity or anything. I'm just some psychologist and I have to buy food. I was out with my dog. I have a small, I have a, I have a small handbag dog. I have a, cho- I have a chihuahua. And we were, I'd taken her to the Canberra Noodle Markets, which happens in September at the beginning of spring. And then they have the Enlightened Festival, which where all the buildings get lit up. And my dog had, because it was Enlightened, I'd put her in a little jacket that was covered in fairy lights. And one of my clients saw me and said, it was fantastic to see you at this festival with your dog lit up being part of the fun. That's right. I'm like, yeah. Of course. And, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, it does, when you, you know, uh, back to the disclosure, just, you know, disclosing yeah. a little bit does give you that extra connection. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And I think they appreciate, it's not as if we're telling them all our problems. Mm. It just uh, allows them, for them to know that we actually do understand well, it's funny in EAP. Of course, I'm working with a lot of people that 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 come that are coming from a work environment in an office environment, and they'll start talking about stuff, and then they'll start explaining, and I'll, and I'll just say, "Let me stop you there." Twenty five years in corporate before I was a therapist, and they're like, "Oh, thank God you understand." <laughs> and then suddenly, it's they don't have That's to. Right. They don't feel like they have to explain everything anymore, and they can, so they can actually tell their story. It's really quite powerful sometimes that self discovery That's right. It is. It is powerful, and I don't see anything wrong with it. Mm. Mm. Neither do I. I'm completely on on the same page with you there. You know, we're human, and so yes, we understand. And you know, there's nothing wrong. Some people, if people know you have some story, and we all have some story to tell, mm. 
And, you know, it's not as if we're needing to tell the whole story, but we all have a story. Mm. We're all like everybody else. We're not perfect. Yeah. So something that we talked about just while we were setting, while we were setting up for today, I, I, um, I gave Olga some questions that may or may not be asked. And one of them was, what did life look like before you were a therapist? What was your response, Olga? My response was I couldn't even remember life where the thing, <laughs> when was that? It's really, when I looked at it, I thought my life before being a psychologist, I thought, oh, my gosh, I went from school to university to study psychology and then work yeah. as a psychologist. So life before that is, uh, well, then I'd have to go back to thinking about university life life at University of Wollongong when I was a student there, full-time student. So you so you, you were born, bred, stayed in Wollongong as well? No, I was born, bred okay. in Sydney. I came down here to go to university and okay. so um, so because I was uh, from Sydney, I lived down here. Mm. And when I first arrived to Wollongong, I thought, oh, my gosh, this place is so boring. So, so for in, so for in, say for international listeners, because I know that I have a few. <laughs> explain explain Wollongong for me. What what sorry? Explain Wollongong and the demographic and the type of people that live in Wollongong. Oh, okay. So now, when I first came here, I thought yep. it was boring. Then I really loved it. It is on the south coast, beautiful. With the so it's beaches. about an hour. It's about an hour south of about an hour south, south of Sydney. Of Sydney. Yep. Yes. Yes. It's a mi- mining, mining, manufacturing. Well, it was with the, the steelworks. Steelworks. Yes. Yep. And so uh, there was uh, lots of uh, people worked at the steelworks at that time, and um, it's. Now it's just, uh, you know, we still got the still works, but there's lots of beautiful uh, beaches here. And what I like about it down here, everything's so close. We're not like in Sydney where you drive one hour, an hour and a half to get somewhere or to even get to work. Yeah. Everything is so close. And it's a bit, uh, it's a regional area, so and mm. because it's small, lots of people do uh, know each other. And um, with regards to the university now, it is just so big now with lots of. Well, it's students. a world. It's a world class university. It is it's, a world it's class the, university. Isn't it in the top fifty or something? Yes, it yeah. is. So it it's is, a... and so there's just and it does. Lots of university students are down here. Mm. And um, because they've got all the different um, the different uh, accommodation for the students, and um, it is it's just somewhere that I call home now. Mm. Well, my my great auntie Doreen and her husband Stan lived in Fairy Meadow, which is just down oh, the road yes. from Wollongong. And they moved here in the sixties because in the late sixties, so before I was born. For his ill health, he was a very unwell, very sickly man. And they moved to Australia and he was 93 when he died. (laughs) And that was about 12 years ago. Well, you know what, because uh, as... uh, The fresh air, the just the... the, fresh air. And the life, it is the life. And uh, all the kids love it because uh, it's so close, you go to the beach. Over Mm. summer, all the kids here are down at the beach. So what's the population of of Wollongong? It's about 25,000, is that right? Or am I I have no idea. Yeah, I think I I did a little bit of, I did a little bit of Wikipedia research uh, before coming up. I think it's about 25,000. But the population goes up to nearly thirty thousand when the when university is in session. So it's a it's it's pretty big. It's it, it, is it has huge big. huge growth. It is, and you know we have all the different uh, we have different events that come down here, and um, and uh, we try and uh, Wollongong tries and encourages other um, people to come down here as a tourist attraction as well. Mm. And over summer, I remember we had, and I have no idea what was the festival called. It, oh, I think it was a Corona festival on the beach and it was the first time it was down here. Okay. So all the young uh, 
young, what will I call them? They're not kids. Young people. Young people, yes, <laughs> young people. But it was really, really good to have that here. So there were mm. lots of even people travelling from everywhere else to come down yes. to this festival. And, of course, the thing about Wollongong is that it's actually, it, it is at sea, it's mostly at sea level or just above sea level. Yes. And it's in a, it's sort of pushed, it's literally between a rock and the ocean because behind Wollongong, you have the escarpment of Mount Bulai, don't you? And oh, yes, Mount, we and, do. And, and Mount we Kira. Do. Yeah. And there's lots of beautiful the views, walking the, tracks the as views well. Are fantastic. So people get to go bushwalking as well. Yeah. You know, so, so there's still... Bush and sea. Bush and sea. That's bush right. Bush and sea. Fantastic. Fantastic. So... I want to thank you for speaking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing your story and self-disclosing. Um, <laughs> I'd just like to finish off with my clinicians with a couple of questions, if that's okay. And the first one is, what do you think the future of mental health in Australia looks like? Okay, that's an interesting question. The future of mental health. Well, currently the focus, like, the focus is at the moment on uh, suicide prevention and reducing suicide because it's quite high between uh, for adolescents and young people. Mm. And the future of mental health, I think, will be that there will be there's a push for the government to. Um, increase the amount of sessions for uh, people who are under mental health care plans. So at the um, moment it's six with another referral f to go up to ten. Yes, yes. to go yes, so yeah. it's ten. And they really need a lot more. And mm. um, and so there's a push for that so that then uh, there's more opportunity for um, people to be able to get the mental health care they need and plus also uh, for prevention and with what they're just giving 10 sessions this that's nothing mm, mm. well I mean that's as we were talking about earlier on that's one a month for, for 10 months that's exactly right and, and if you're in so crisis people if they need weekly sessions and not 10 or 20 they need more. They have complex uh, histories, complex traumas, and they need a lot more sessions than that. So sometimes when, um, if you go to your GP and you get a mental health care plan, you get your 10. You may get more if you admit yourself to hospital because you are suicidal. You may get more and more ongoing care with a psychiatrist. Is that true? No, you can't get more. It's 10 a calendar year. Even if you've been admitted to hospital That's and you've right. been in... It's 10 sessions a calendar wow. year and those sessions entitle you to get a Medicare rebate. Yeah, which is only about $60 on the fee. No, it depends how it's more than that. depends. Uh, there's a different rebate for psychologists and there's okay. a different rebate for clinical psychologists. Yeah. Um, and people do presume that because they've got a mental health care plan that uh, it's bulk built, but it's mm. not. The rebate's yeah. too low. And, uh, and it's not. It just entitles you to a Medicare rebate. It doesn't entitle you that you just have 10 sessions a year, just 10 sessions under Medicare rebate. Mm. So you can continue to see a psychologist <laughs> and for some people, and people then afterwards, if they've got uh, private health insurance, they can get rebates from private health funds as well. Mm. Yeah, if they have private health if insurance. If they have private health funds, and okay. plus depends what they cover. So that, so that future is you're, you're, you're definitely leaning towards that, that push for more sessions. There's a big for... push at the moment for it, uh, for uh, more sessions a lot more sessions, and for it to not just be that, but to be able to be to cover um, carers as well, uh, the prevention as well, mm. and um, with regards to for children and adolescents, that um, that the parent, if they needed to see the psychologist for the child, that it's not um, because they don't get it, it's uh, the rebate. It's just for the child that 
They so considering, so considering our prime minister recently said um, regarding the increase in Centrelink payments um, that it was unfend, unfunded empathy. What do you think the chances are of this current government actually coming to the party on more sessions for mental health sessions? You know, I think they'll have to. They'll have to. Because, uh, you know, if they're pushing for, uh, if they're really focusing on suicide prevention, Mm. then you need to fund more sessions. It really needs to be, you know, it's mental health a priority everywhere. You know, they want it to be uh, workplaces, to be mentally healthy, uh, mental health. Uh, One in five people has, um, suffers from a mental illness. They have to. You mm. can't just uh, give someone up to 10 sessions a calendar year. It's just... A bit crazy. It is crazy. What can you do in 10 sessions? <laughs> it's not like we're talking we don't about have mental magic health. wands. No. <laughs> we're good, but we're not that good. Hey, That's Elsa? right. I agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So one last question. Take yourself back to when you were at university and you can give yourself one piece of advice for your life, what would it be? Oh, one piece of advice for my life. Do you know what? I don't think I have any because I, uh, I've i been happy with how I went through life, I have to admit. Um, I actually really enjoyed uni, so I'm glad I went to university and um, I've been really happy with my life and I don't have regrets because um, I can't change anything. And I've been, uh, I'm happy with everything I did in my life. Maybe it would have been, I have no idea, no advice at all to me. I studied oh. and I went out. I met, had so friends. study, work hard, have, have fun. That's exactly right. Which is what you've done. That's what I've done. And I've set myself goals as I've been going on in life and achieving them. So, so be it. That's amazing. That's amazing. I want to thank you so much for talking to me, Olga. Um, As always, it's been a pleasure um, doing this podcast. My thanks to my guest, Olga, for sharing her secrets today. Thanks to Nick McConiston for my podcast. He's the podcast guy who makes this sound okay at the end of it. And thank you to you, the listener, for listening, subscribing and rating us on where you get your podcasts from. If you would like to share some secrets with the with, with me and with the audience, I'd love to hear from you. Please send an email via the website, secretkeepercounseling.com.au. Until next time, stay well. Thank you for listening to Secrets We Share. If you're interested in sharing some of your secrets, please visit our website at secretkeepercounseling.com.au. Keep an ear out for our next episode soon.